You're listening to the Apple Insider Podcast. Welcome to episode 85 of the Apple Insider Podcast. I'm your host, Victor Marks, and joining me today is Daniel Aaron Dilger. Hello from San Francisco. Welcome. So, Dan, you are our representative at the Apple event. How, how was it being at the event, and how was this, this event different than past events that you've attended? This is the second time they've had a major event at the, it's called the Bill Graham Civic Auditorium. Uh, Bill Graham was a music producer. It's, it's kind of a general sort of music venue, um, auditorium kind of space. And I believe last year, uh, when, the first time they used it was uh, for the iPad Pro and the, the new Apple TV. And I think they re- renovated the seating, so they made it quite a bit nicer. And they dropped the ceiling, and they really changed it from just a basic arena. It's right in the middle of San Francisco, next to City Hall, into a very kind of um, a nice spot. And they used it again for WWDC, both for the keynote and then for they had a party afterward that they hand, handled there, which was the first time for that. And so this was the second time that they've had, and the first time for an iPhone uh, that they had at this particular venue. And there was a lot of production that went into it. I mean, it's, it's a bigger space. There was a lot more journalists. I saw a lot of people from all over the world there, and you constantly see people talking in a different language. And the only thing that you can understand that they're saying is, you know, they're saying something, and then you hear them say iPhone, iPhone. seven, <laughs> iPhone seven. <laughs> yeah. So it it really shows how uh, important the events that Apple's doing is on a global scale because you know we've been doing this for a long time and it wasn't that long ago that it was it was journalists from San Francisco that would go to these events and they weren't as big and um, so that, I think that's kind of the, one of the bigger things that kind of struck me is the the amount of um, polish that Apple puts into it and then one of the other things you noticed I mean not only is it a big stage show uh, in a, in a huge event and you know they brought in Sia to perform and she did a couple of songs and then afterward when they did the hands-on they've done what they've done a number of times in the last couple of years where they built out an entire basically like a pop-up retail store where they show off the new equipment and previously they've done this at the other venue closer to the Metreon in San Francisco called Center for the Arts uh, Yerba Buena and there's a kind of a small building that's sort of reserved for event space. But here they've had to build it from scratch, basically, within the inside of this arena. And so they take sort of a back hallway, and the entire, um, the entire hallway is wrapped with white board and LED lighting. And that's just the hallway going into this event. And then inside, inside the space, you have... It's very much like a an Apple store, it's, it's Apple retail store, retail where they have shop. huge banners and so it, it's there's a lot of effort going into kind of crafting an experience. It kind of runs in parallel with uh, the products that they're building and the story that they're telling about how to use it and who's using it and things like that. So it's kind of interesting to watch that evolve. Let me ask you. I, I know that you followed the development of Campus Two, the UFO, and we know that there's a, an underground auditorium for that. But I believe it's smaller than the Bill Graham. So, so do you think that future events will continue to be held in the Bill Graham, or are we going to see a, a return to holding events on Apple's campus? 
I don't know for sure. I, I'm imagining that there will be certainly some events there. I mean, right now Apple hosts some of the events that they that I have attended. Um, I mean, most notably on campus, they've had uh, some events there. I'm trying to remember what, what the last product they launched at the Apple campus was. Um, it was just recently. Um, they've had two. Uh, and my brain is not working right now. That's where also where they have shareholder conventions. In in the there's a small theater within the existing Infinite Loop Apple campus. And uh, I'm trying to remember what the last two events were that I went <laughs> to Cupertino were were for. Um, but both times it was hands-on products for an event. So. Apple is alternating back and forth. Obviously, the iPhone is a huge event, and so it it kind of pulls in too many people to fit into a small theater like that. And um, it's kind of hard to judge the sense of how large the underground theater is in at the new Campus Two site. It doesn't look very big when you're flying over with a drone, or if you're looking at it from the from the sidewalk. But um, it it probably is bigger than it. It, you know, in kind of construction, sometimes things look bigger than they look smaller, depending on how progress happens. But so let's let's talk about the things that were announced. Um, clearly, we we got iPhone seven and seven plus, and some changes for those devices from their their predecessors, and an Apple Watch. We actually got two variants of Apple Watch. We got the uh, the Series One and a Series Two watch. And yeah, the Series 1 is the carryover of the existing Apple Watch with a, an improved processor. And I ask, how they describe that is they said it, it now has the, you know, the dual-core processor that's in the modern... The, the, the Series 2 watch. The new Series 2. Um, and I ask specifically, does that mean that it has the same S, S2 package? Or is it just a S1 with an upgraded processor? And... They didn't have an answer for me, and they were going to answer it, and they didn't. But so that that isn't totally clear for me if if it has the same chip package, or if it's just an upgraded version of. It, it got a uh, dual core something, but we have no idea if it's exactly the same one that's in the S two or what. Yeah, and actually, now that I've said that out loud, it, it's quite clear to me that it's not the S two because that's would also include GPS and other features that are new to the. Series two model, right? Because it's a, a whole system in a package, right? So it's apparently the S S one package upgraded to a newer, better processor, right? Or it could be an entirely redesigned package that just happens to not have the GPS in it. Yeah, S one and a half, maybe. Right. And they've done that before, right? You know, when they when they shipped iPad twos for as long as they did, they revised the internals on those along the way. So this is not a, a, a huge thing if they have redone the entire layout just for a one and a half. Yeah, and also I think the Apple TV had they would call it a there, whatever there was processor a, it was. They would call it the A four, but it, it kept getting smaller and and it was it was like adjusted slightly or something. But yeah, so and, they can change the processor without changing the branding of it. Yeah, and there was a third gen and a half or third and a half gen Apple TV along the way. It's it's certainly not the first time they've revised things midstream. So, since we started talking about the watch, what what were the big changes, and what were your favorite details among them? So, the current watch is 
water resistant. And I think they call it IP6, or they call it IPX7. And what that IP means is there's two numbers. One is dust resistance and one is liquid resistance. And on the watch, they call they didn't specify a dust resistance, which doesn't mean that it's not resistant, but it means that they didn't test it or verify that it is a certain um, amount. Yeah. So IPX7. IPX7 or IPX6 or something like that? Well, IPX7 is that the Apple Watch can withstand immersion in water up to one meter for up to 30 minutes. Okay. Which means you're you're good for hand washing, you're good for a light shower. Um, Prolonged exposure, like swimming, might be harmful to it. Yeah. So I've I've had mine underwater, not diving, but I've I've actually swam with it on. Um, in in clear water, it's pretty safe. I think I think it's bad to put it in salt water. Yeah. Because that's more corrosive. Uh, the so the series two, which which is what's new about it, is not only is it, uh, it's actually good enough to swim in. I mean the the. Well, it's intended for. They don't give it an IP rating that I saw on the back of the watch. Instead, it says 50 meters, which 50 meters is quite deep. It's what 50 meters is 150 feet. Well, so it's an interesting thing because uh, I'm I'm also a watch guy and I've okay. written for watch blogs and the the 50 meters rating the the meters rating that you see on a water resistance on a watch is a static rating, right? That's that's for that pressure. Um, at that, that depth without any dynamic movement that would increase the pressure. And so what what they say when they give those watch ratings, the guidance is from watch manufacturers, you know, your Orients, your, your, um, your Seikos and people like that, is that 50 meters or 100 meters is suitable for hand washing and you know, 100 meters is suitable for hand washing and light swimming and car washes and things like that but you're certainly not going to go diving with it um and and the 50 meters is very much you could do laps but really it's it's hand washing don't it's it's, it's similar to that ipx7 rating in terms of the way that they think about it and and that's because you know they're used to doing gaskets with screw-on backs and screw-on crowns and there are a lot of ingress points right and yeah, water water is so incredibly heavy that um, when you, I've I, I'm not an experienced diver, but I've done some diving, and when you get down to fifty meters, I mean that's, it's you have to know what you're doing. It's very dangerous, so it's not a dive watch. No, you would take going down, but you know if you're swimming, it's great for that. Um, so they've made a big improvement in, in water resistance, and not not only in just improving how the seals and stuff, but also the, the novel thing, one of the things we talked about was the fact the speaker is redesigned so that um, instead of filling up with water, it's designed to expel the water. And that works specifically w- with swim workouts. So when you start a swim workout, it turns the screen off. Because when a, when a screen, whether it's an iPhone or an Apple Watch, if you have the screen wet enough, it doesn't respond to your touch because the capacitance of your finger and the environment changes so dramatically that the watch can't handle it. So if you're taking a shower and you're trying to navigate your watch, it doesn't work very well. Um, you have to dry it off. You have to dry your finger off a little bit. So um, when when you're doing a swim with a Series 2 watch, it's not designed to be used while you're swimming, which, of course, you wouldn't probably be doing anyway. So what you do, you, you start a swim, 
exercise routine, you jump in the water, the watch screen itself turns off and it goes into a special mode and you can do your swim. And then when you finish or when you're checking your status, you turn the digital crown and when you turn it enough, it kind of like wakes up the screen and it becomes usable again. And the speakers vibrates the water out of the speaker cavity. So it's pretty clever design. It really is. And what I was thinking is that, you know, the guidance that I have in, in the manuals from wristwatches that I've had, from, from mechanical wristwatches that I've had, has been, you know, yes, we say 50 meters. No, don't really take it down to 50 meters. Yeah. H- here, it, I, I feel like Apple is being a little bit more genuine about that rating. It really is rated to, to take it down. You know, you can go to the bottom of the deep end of the pool without worry kind of thing, where you wouldn't yeah. necessarily do that with, with uh, a traditional watch rated to 50 meters. And also talking about phones, um, Apple is kind of known for over-prom- or under-promising and over-delivering. And with water resistance, we've seen that to where when they talked about the watch previously, they said kind of don't swim in it. Uh, when it is, you know, pretty safe to swim with a, with a standard Apple Watch today, uh, if you're not diving with it, you know, if, if you're just getting it wet. Um, but, but Apple said, you know, it's kind of splash resistant and, you know... If, you could maybe wash your hands with it on. They're, they're being very conservative in what they can do. And also, iPhone 6S, the, the, current, the, the previous phone that introduced last year, currently available Apple didn't phone. make any promises about water resistance, but we know that they actually introduced quite a lot of seal technology to where you can actually splash a 6S. And I, I've seen people torture test them, and they don't last. Um, it, with deep immersion for a period of time, but they can't handle being wet to some extent. They don't immediately die, which you think of with electronics. So it was kind of a half step towards water resistance already that Apple didn't say anything about. And, you know, it, the the obvious comparison is Samsung. Samsung's been talking about water resistance, and it's and it kind of has promised waterproofing. Right. They've talked about this for three years on successive yeah. generations. And this year after three years of advertising this as being a unique feature, this year, Consumer Reports and uh, another site that we report about, I can't think of the name offhand, but both of them tested water systems on the Samsung phones, both the the flagship uh, S7 and the Note, I, I believe it, no, maybe it was the, maybe it was the Active, which is supposed to be even more. It's right, that's the one with the ports that get sealed with the flaps and things, yeah. Yeah, so the the actually the, they're both supposed to be water resistant. They're both supposed to be waterproof, and Samsung makes kind of um, contradictory claims about what the waterproofing is supposed to mean. But what in you know whatever it is, they they're kind of exaggerating. And in multiple testing by different companies, they've all found that it, the phone either dies or it it minimal the audio stops working and does not work ever again correctly. Right. So. That's not really what people would think of when they hear that it's waterproof. So, so the Galaxy S7 is rated to IP68, and they say that it's IP68 certified. Um, and you wrote this back on July 8th, that Consumer Sports said that it's no, it's not actually water resistant. And they bought two of them, and the failures were that the screen flashed green and other colors and stopped responding to touch, and that tiny bubbles appeared on the camera lenses. Yeah, it's pretty serious. <laughs> pretty seriously not resistant. Yeah. Um, you know, Samsung also claims that the active can survive drops up to five feet on a flat surface, but Consumer Reports didn't attempt to test those. Um, parallel tests by Square Trade. Square Trade offers third-party insurance 
for phones so that if if you uh if your phone gets damaged for almost any reason or even lost or stolen that square trade will insure you for it and they they insure for i think three years as opposed to two years of apple care for example uh they they tested and they found that the claims for water resistant were also inconsistent so it, i mean it really shows that claims are not all equal and Apple is more conservative in what they're claiming, and Samsung is quite liberal in what they're suggesting that will happen. And it's more than just whether or not your phone's going to survive. If you have a bunch of pictures and data on your phone and you have a water immersion issue, you're probably going to lose that, and you're not going to get it again unless you have it backed up correctly. So um, you know, if, if you have a Samsung phone and you think you can take it to the pool and it dies, you've lost all your stuff. And even if Samsung gives you a new phone, you've still lost your stuff. So it it's really kind of a trust thing, and it and it turns into a satisfaction issue for people. Absolutely. But um, yeah, let's stop, let's stop talking about Samsung for a while. Well, I mean, <laughs> you but, know, but yeah, they totally they, they came out with uh, a waterproof device, and now they're going out with a bang, and um, <laughs> they're going out with a flaming bang. Well, yes, I mean, they're 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 they're, they're fireworks, right? Yeah. <sighs> Somebody sent me a, a news report where somebody had claimed that their car got on fire. They they plugged their phone and their Galaxy S7 into a, a I, don't, I guess it was a Note 7. Yeah. Plugged into their phone to charge and came back and their car was on fire. Hey, I've I've had a fire in my car before due to a, a non-Apple 30-pin uh, to lightning adapter. It's scary having a fire in your car as you're driving. Yeah. That would be particularly scary. Also in airplanes, there's this talk about the FAA saying that they're considering banning the Note 7 because you know you have a fire in an airplane. That's pretty serious. Uh, yes. Yes, it is. You, you, there's nowhere to pull over and park. Yeah. And, you know, there's a limited amount of air. <laughs> <laughs> that, too. Funny how that works. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, when I had that 30-pin adapter... And all the, all the flights now are non-smoking. They have been for some time. Yes, they have, although they still have ashtrays in the, the uh, toilets. Yeah, even in new planes. I don't think there's any countries that, well, the, you know, international flights. I'm old enough to remember when people could smoke on on international flights. Me too. It was so disgusting. But they, they, So I, I asked a friend, why do they have ashtrays on, on airplanes still? And he said the answer is that even when someone lights up and it's illegal to light up, and we know it is, you still got to have a safe place to put it out. I guess that makes sense. So that, that was the reason. Although I flew on an international flight recently, and there were ashtrays in the armrests. Do you remember I, the last time you saw ashtrays in the armrests? Yeah. I was on a, a flight. I think it was the last time I we went to Europe. And our flight got delayed, and we sat on the tarmac for an hour. And I was trying to charge up my phone. And I went into the bathroom and plugged into the shaver plug-in. And that was the only outlet on the plane was mm-hmm. in the bathroom. And so while we were sitting there, I just left it in there to charge. And I kind of I hit it in the <laughs> oh, damn. in the side, which is probably this is already not, not going well. <laughs> and the the flight attendant, it was something like British Airways or something. The flight attendant was very proper and very upset, and was thinking that we're going to turn the plane around and make everyone get Someone's on. Someone's left their saying, phone unattended me? because it's unattended property me? and is a threat. Yes. Well, at the same time, it did actually look kind of scary. It looked like a bomb because you know there are cables, and I think it, what it was, <laughs> I plugged my battery in. Oh, so it looked, it probably looked suspect, but first of all, the rule is you can't leave anything unattended anywhere because that's automatically suspect. Yeah. 
so it was it was like a little bit sketchy uh, in appearance. But fortunately, the the pilot was like, "Yeah, we're not gonna turn around for this guy plugging his battery in." So it resolved. But there was a little bit of way way to get the stink eye from everyone on the plane, Dan. Yeah, that would be bad. I would probably have gotten arrested too. For sure. Charged with like, they probably would have charged me how much fuel it cost uh, in that plane. Uh, no, but you would have gone to jail for making threats. Or yeah, something Some, something ridic- Yeah, something like that. But yeah, I would not want to understand what is involved in that sort of situation. No. So I won't, I won't ever do that again. Let's <laughs> let's get back to, to talking about the uh, the Apple event and the products that came out of it, although I love hearing about your travels. Um, so with with the watch, we got these the Series 1, the Series 2. The Series 2 is different how? We know it's got the dual core. What else? Uh, it comes in a different finish. So instead of the sport aluminum, stainless steel, regular, and gold... Edition. Uh, edition. Now they're referring it to all of it as, as Series 2. Um, there's a Series 2 aluminum, there's a Series 2 st- stainless steel, and there's a Series 2 uh, white ceramic. And the advantage to white ceramic is that it's hard, and it's the same weight about as the stainless steel. It's it's harder than steel. It has an interesting look to it. Um, I'm not sure what I think about it, because I've heard some people talking about it I overheard John Gruber talking about it as being the very classic Apple look, and there was a huge banner on the side of the wall in in the hands-on room, that, like this enormous um, ceramic Apple watch. And it really does look like a... It, it kind of makes me think of an iPod from the early days of the 2000s. Uh, kind of like a third-gen iPod with that rounded profile to it. Yeah, yeah, a very kind of classic Ivy... Uh, jobs kind of product uh, very very minimal and you know I tried it on it, it also reminds me of you know Wally from, Eve from Wally mm-hmm. how much is the ceramic one going to go for it's like 1100 and something dollars Ooh. I mean it's kind of expensive compared to the other other models where I don't I don't if it was the same price as stainless steel I could see maybe opting for it but I think you know for my for my finances, I think I would rather have stainless steel. Uh-huh. <clears throat> I'm just the stainless steel is now. What are the prices? Three. Is so so. In fact, the 42 millimeter ceramic is one thousand three hundred dollars. Thirteen hundred. Okay. With the sport band, by the way, so you get white ceramic with the sport silicone band for thirteen hundred dollars. Yeah. So that's you know that's, that's a, an money. interesting level of um, premium tier. The uh, the steel model. Let's see here. So the series two aluminum case is three sixty nine for the thirty eight millimeter. It's uh, three ninety nine for the forty two millimeter, and the stainless steel case begins at five forty nine and uh, and six forty nine. There's also is that the sport band. Well, no, the the stainless steel with sport band is five forty nine. The the saddle brown classic buckle is six forty nine, and the modern buckle is seven forty nine for the thirty eight millimeter, and the blue leather loop is seven hundred for the forty two millimeter. If you want the Milanese loop, then it's six forty nine. 
if you want the link bracelet, so it's kind of you're talking 949. Price. So you're, you're already back up to the ceramic level. I think I think those are kind of a similar price that the standard Apple Watch was before. And so the other new thing they do is they're selling the existing Apple Watch with a higher performance uh, processor for an entry-level price. It's what, 269 Well, 269 is the 38 millimeter, but if you prefer the 42 millimeter, as many of us do, then you're looking at 300 Okay. It's a 299 price point for the 42 millimeter. You know, I kind of like the smaller watch. Do you really? I do. In, in the past, I, I the smaller was, watch did not have as much performance as the uh, the 42 millimeter. I don't know why it would have less performance. There was a different processor involved for the, the really? small. Yeah. Because it also has slightly lower resolution. That too. So I don't know how much a difference that would make in terms of like usability. But I now I have to catch myself. I've never seen a problem with overall performance on the watch, and you, you know now that I have to say that out loud. It, the, <laughs> You're going to hear from. I'm Neil. not talking about apps. I'm okay. not talking about okay. launching apps. I'm okay. talking about just the regular UI. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not. Yeah, apps under WatchOS two are terrible, okay. like unusable virtually. Um, but with my existing watch, with WatchOS three, apps are tremendously better. It's, they're actually, you can actually use apps. So it's kind of like going to iPhone OS 2, you know, when they first came out. Mm-hmm. In, instead of having sort of, you know, web apps that could sort of work, you have actual apps. And they work just like Mail and Safari on the phone. Yeah. So. Now, some, some people have been suggesting that the, the original plan for the watch was that it was going to become the modern computing platform for everyone and that the phone would, would even take a backseat to it. And that this event represents sort of a reset of that philosophy and that instead we're seeing that if you care about health and you care about running, then the watch is for you. Otherwise, maybe not so much. Well, I mean, that's maybe what they were saying, but that's never ever what Apple has ever suggested. Okay. And it doesn't make any sense. I mean, why would Apple say, you know, we're making however many billions of dollars they make on iPhones. Hey, let's make a smaller product that costs less that is going to make us less money and replace the iPhone with it. You know, I mean, right. I think, on, I think the people that are stupid. saying that are, are the same people that suggest that the, the iPhone has sort of run its course as far as, as innovation can go and that we're pretty much in just uh, refine and maintain for the iPhone. Well, they're also saying that iPhone, that phones in general in the future are going to cost a hundred dollars and you know, no, that, that has not been, they've been saying that for quite some time now. Mm. They've been saying Android is going to take over because it's cheaper and, no, it hasn't. It has not. And there's still a, there's a huge and increasing market for Apple's premium phones that cost so much more than everyone else's phones that it's hard to even understand how it is that there's so many people on Earth that are paying a huge premium for an iPhone. It's almost difficult for me to understand. And I'm not often accused of being... Um, you're not often at a loss for words. Well, also, I'm not. <laughs> I'm not not often accused of like not understanding Apple's premium business model. Yeah. So, where where do you think the what what do you think the watch is for, and who should buy one? Uh, well, for me, having used the watch over the last year. Uh, I have to say that I don't use watches. I've never used a watch. I have never really wanted to wear a watch. 
it's not like a fashionable thing of like, I want to put a watch on me. The last time I remember wearing a watch was in the 90s. Mm-hmm. And um, having started wearing the watch just kind of because Apple made it, basically, is why I started putting it on. I, I wire it every day. And if I leave the house without it, if I take a shower, take it off, and don't put it on, I feel like there's something wrong. I have a couple times, you know, I went, I did have, had this situation with surgery last last month. I was in the hospital for a couple of weeks, and I didn't have a watch charger. I went into the emergency room without even a, a phone charger, and ended up getting hospitalized for this whole period of time. And Fortunately, Apple Insider sent me a, a watch charger <laughs> so I could have my watch. We, we sprung for a watch charger. Very yeah, good. I survived. But um, going for even a few days without it, I also had my watch serviced at one point. And so there's a couple of times in the last year that I that I haven't yeah. had it. And I found myself looking at my wrist repeatedly, even though I knew that I didn't have it. It was just, it became so ingrained. And um, it's it's not just you know, a fetish of having something on your wrist, it's because it's useful. You want to know the time. That's the most useful thing. And also navigation or um, notifications are the, the big reason to have a watch. And then also I track activity. So I am, I, I love data. And so seeing data about myself has been incredible. And being able to track things this year, I have tracked my heartbeat and my weight and body composition in ways that I have never done before in my life. And it's, to me, it's really interesting. And it's, it's actually made a huge difference in my health. I was going to ask that. What I'm doing. You know, what, what, what has changed about your health as a result of that? Um, well, I, I went on a cruise in January this year and I I showed up and I was like, what, what's, what's wrong? My clothes don't fit. And then, you know, it was a week of all you can eat kind of stuff. And I was thinking, wow, I'm really, I'm really slacking off and I can't do this. You know, I'm trying to get to the point where you have to take care of your body when you get old. And um, so I came home and started a, I, I kind of restarted the exercise that I had been doing. I've been kind of slacking off and was also changing my diet and tracking my diet and paying more attention to what I was eating. And I was using a lot of health kit stuff. So there's an app called Lose It that tracks what you eat. It makes it pretty easy to record what you're eating. Which otherwise, you know, without some help, is kind of difficult uh, to have a sense of how much you're eating and how many calories you are. Uh, the watch tracks your calorie burn, tracks your exercise, tracks your your heartbeat and your activity level. Um, so you get feedback, and you get. I, I spend a lot of time in front of the computer, so if if I don't have somebody reminding me to get up and do things, I sit there for hours and don't move, and that's really bad for you. And so having something that actively reminds you, hey, stand up and go do something. And you have 700 calories to burn and you're behind. So, you know, go outside and have a walk, you know, do, do an exercise session. That kind of constant uh, mindfulness about health helped me lose. Uh, I lost about 15 pounds. For, um, 75. I lost like close to 20 pounds. And then um, this summer, I was kind of... Uh, I I got hurt something in my back and it was kind of hard to keep up my exercise and I was kind of reaching a plateau and then of course I went into surgery and was on this basically a fast I mean they wouldn't let me eat and came out I lost another 15 pounds <laughs> so I'm weighing what I weighed in high school now all of a sudden 
Um, but you know, you, you feel a remarkable difference when you're active and when you're um, eating better, and when you're aware of what's we're doing with your body. And being an American, I you know I, I try pretty hard. I'm not like you know full on eating junk food American, but um, still in America we have this sort of culture that we've developed over the last several decades of eat a bunch of junk and don't worry about it and then just like chug down a bunch of antacid and you know it's kind of funny to not exercise and it's killing us and that's why we have epi- why we have diabetes and why we have these things and um, if you when you're around healthcare and you see the actual impact that having diabetes is not only uh, you know a difficult thing to deal with it has drastic impacts on your health and your body it's it's a really serious deal and so taking you know having any kind of electronics attached to your body that are giving you feedback about what's happening really has is going to make a huge difference in your life going forward and i think apple has really capitalized on that and of course there's other companies there's, there are companies that were coming out with smartwatches years before apple and they had some of these uh, things on them. There, there were activity trackers that, you know, Fitbit came out, I don't know how many years before Apple Watch. But, you know, there were things available before then. I had a um, I had a heart monitor watch mm-hmm. that was kind of a cheap thing that I don't know how accurate it was, but I didn't wear it all the time. You know, I put it on while I was doing an exercise routine. And I had a uh, a chest strap thing. It was like a Bluetooth chest strap yeah. that I was trying to review for um like doing exercise, it was a health kit enabled device, but it wasn't, you know, obviously you can't wear it all the time. So the watch, getting your pulse from your, from your wrist is not, especially the top of your wrist is not the best way to get a pulse. Yeah. You'd but, want to do it from the bottom of your wrist. Yeah. I mean, the that came out recently when Apple was talking about some of the executives, um, I can't remember the source of the thing, but it was basically saying that when they were designing the watch, they were... It was, it was an engineer who had uh, left Apple yeah. and was talking about his experience as being a part of the product team. Yeah. So, you know, optimally, if you're taking your pulse, if you go to the hospital, they do it on the end of your finger. But it's not... That's not something you're going to walk around wearing. Um, and it would be better to have the watch face on your the bottom of your wrist, but that's not how people wear watches. So it is, you know, a little bit of a, a compromise to make something that actually works. And there are occasions when I will notice, um, and talking about the accuracy of, of the heart monitor on the watch, every time I've had my vitals taken, which like when I was in the hospital happened several times a day, I would look at my watch and look at what the ox- oximeter on my finger was saying, and they were remarkably accurate. Um, so the watch is actually good at doing what it does as it's designed. However, I've also noticed doing exercise routines, particularly when you're doing like a floor exercise, when you're doing P90X or you're doing yoga or something like that, frequently we'll say, you know, my heart will be racing and I'll be having sweat just dripping off me and I'll look down and my watch will say my heartbeat is 50. And right. I'm like, so are it's you reading about half of what it actually is, right? Yeah, and it, almost always it, t- it gives you half. Yeah. And you adjust the thing a little bit and then it's like, oh no, wait, wait, wait. Oh, it's 100. You know, it's 150 or whatever. So, yeah, there are there are points at which it's not telling you the exact number of hearts, heartbeat palpitations or whatever. But um, I would like to have a better sense of how to make them more accurate. 
I think there's some interesting things they can do with the watch. Um, WatchOS 3 introduces that new Breathe app, which is sort of also an, an interesting way to monitor health or kind of actively change what's happening with your bodies or you're kind of focusing and calming your breath while it's also checking your heart rate. The new swim uh, exercise routine, um, I don't, obviously I've never, I haven't tried it yet. So that'd be interesting to see how that works and get kind of a sense of how well it monitors your heart rate or, or whatever it does. Um, I was also thinking one thing I'd like Apple to have on the watch is a sleep mode where you wear your watch at night. Um, you don't have to charge your watch all night because it doesn't take that long to charge it up. So if they had a, a sleep exercise mode, basically, where you turn it on, you go to bed, and it monitors your sleep, and it doesn't, you know, currently with the existing watch, if you put it on and you put it into a, a general exercise mode, it will definitely wear down the battery within five hours, maybe three, because it uses a lot of power to um, constantly monitor your heartbeat. But if it was just um, active, you know, it's like, conservatively actively monitoring your um heartbeat and movement and things like that to give you feedback on your sleep quality there's apps that do that on your phone so i, I would kind of like to see apple do that with the watch so you could actually wear it at night and then you know some point during the day you could plug it in for an hour and have it charged up all the time but um yeah so that's one of the things on my i'm writing up a wish list of things i would like to have different Definitely. Well, I would like to talk about the phones now. We've spent some time on the watch. Let's talk about the other thing that was announced. Um, so there's there's an iPhone 7. There's an iPhone 7 Plus. And the iPhone 7 Plus got a dual camera. It got more RAM. And it, uh, it one of the interesting things that I saw was the uh, that developers are being allowed access to features that were previously Apple only, like the Taptic Engine now has an API. So help help me fill in the gaps of the things that I just said. I know I, I covered it lightly. What's what's missing? What was it covered in the event that I didn't talk about yet? Uh, well, we could talk about the Taptic Engine and the Home button, which has changed. Uh, that was number two, I think, in the list of things. Um, so currently, the home button that we're all familiar with, the t- Touch ID, is a fingerprint sensor, but it also clicks in when it, you press it. It's a it. mechanical switch currently. Yeah, and, it, and it, you can feel the, the um, what's the word for it, that it's going in, the d- depression. It's like pressing a key on a keyboard. Yeah. And on the new phones, there's no movement. So when you touch it, it it's, has kind of a foreign feel to it. But when you... When you feel like you're touching it, it vibrates in a way that you get this kind of feedback that's different. It doesn't feel like a press, but it's uh, it's kind of like same but different. So, so on on the current MacBook Pro, they've got the uh, the Taptic engine as a part of the the trackpad, right? And it's not actually moving, but it certainly feels like it clicks. Yeah. So this is very similar. So you can tell that it's not actually being depressed. But at the same time, you have that feedback to where it kind of feels like it is. So there's a slight adjustment in your brain about what's happening, but it's a similar experience. And the end result for users is that, A, um, it's slightly different, but it still works the same. And B, it's not a physical thing that can wear out. So that's better in that respect. And I'm sure it also makes the device 
thin, you know, helps to make it thinner. But it also contributes to its being water resistant. Yeah, so there's there's less egress for egress. fluid. So, and it may be a half step towards a phone in the future that doesn't have a button at all. Just has a area of the screen that you press on and vibrates like you have a virtual button. So there's just just to read through a little bit of the list on it. There's there's an A10 fusion processor which has four cores, and interestingly, you know, it's been a long time since we've had a a real demonstration about the cores in in a product. You know, I think back to uh, MacWorld of 2000 where. Um, or Mac World 2001, where John Rubinstein got up on stage and talked about how the PowerPC handled instructions going through its cores. And and we got a nice little animation as a slide going back then. We haven't had one of those for a long time. And in this keynote, we got a demonstration of the Fusion processor, where there are two cores that are doing the heavy lifting and two more that are, are conserving battery by running very slowly. I have two things to say about that. One is... Um it's interesting that their use of the Fusion brand name because previously they've used Fusion to refer to yeah, their solid-state combination hard drive. Yeah. So it's basically two different technologies. One is good at being fast, and one is good at being having a lot of capacity. So you're putting them together, and it's a hybrid. So this is a similar sort of sense of here's a hybrid processor where it's fast chips that are efficient and um, or fast chips that are going to be less efficient, but they're more powerful. Right or uh, cores, and then there's like less powerful cores, but they're more efficient. So it's a very similar hybrid sort of branding. Um, of course, that's not, that's not uh, unprecedented. And in fact, everyone else in ARM is doing that. Um, Samsung has been advertising for many years about how many cores they have. And the reason why they have so many cores, they have eight core processors for a couple of years now, is because the generic design that ARM came out with was two sets of cores. One is high power, one is low power. Um, Apple has always had one or two cores. And their um, optimization of software means that in many tasks, there's a whole lot of tasks that are not possible to um, stretch across multiple cores. And in fact, most most of what you're doing on a cell phone is on a single core. And if you're doing multiple things at once, sometimes you can do things in parallel or you can have a task that's using both processor cores at once. But that's a little bit of a stretch. And so, you know, for Samsung to advertise that their processor has four cores, there's two problems with that. One is that there's not much software that can actually take advantage of four cores at once. And Android is not very good at it in general, in scheduling that. And the second thing is that um, you have a certain amount of die space. So you have finite resources on your chip. If you split it up into four instead of two, that means each of those cores is going to be smaller. And so if most of your software is only using one core, instead of using half of the chip, like what Apple's been doing, it's only using a quarter of the chip. So, you know, everyone's been in Android land has been kind of enthralled about Samsung having so many cores. That's actually not a good thing. But um, talking about what Apple is doing with Fusion, they are, you know, in, in, as, in a sense, they are copying this idea that ARM came out with for having two sets of cores 
that work in tandem, one being more powerful, one being much more efficient. So it's interesting that Apple is moving from what they, their historical design of two cores to four cores. And in the, in the chip picture that they showed, they're not four cores of the same size. There's two small cores and two larger cores. So it's, it's very much a, um, a hybrid design between taking some of the advantage that, that Samsung has talked about with having two sets of cores and at the same time capitalizing on the fact that Apple's still focusing on single core performance and having only two cores, two powerful cores as opposed to four and then having overall four cores that can work in, in tandem or as alternating between the two as opposed to splitting a chip into four into eight cores. Right. So T- tell me about the camera because the camera was a big part of the news too. And and I use the iPhone camera all the time. In fact, it's my primary and pretty much only camera for for shooting for us. So, yeah, mobile cameras um every year they've introduced better things and the, the things that make a mobile camera better are having a wider aperture so you're letting more light in having bigger pixels uh, so that each pixel can get as much light as possible and can get give better data so that you don't have crosstalk between them and so you don't have um, the kind of blurring weirdness and color and um, there's a couple other things in terms of like color accuracy and ability to um, focus they use pixels to determine whether something whether it's in focus or not so all those technologies are kind of incrementally moving forward and apple has capitalized on the things that have changed in the last year to improve the camera um the camera is getting bigger so there's actually more more of a bulge than there was uh last year that was introduced in the six um and one of the other huge pictures on the side of the the test wall or the the hands-on Apple store pop-up at the event was a picture, kind of this glamorized picture. It's on the web, their website, I believe, too, that shows a close-up of the iPhone 7, and it, it almost exaggerates the, the camera bulge into a volcano. Wow. And it really shows that, that Apple does not give, um, does not care at all about the contempt that has been spewed in its direction by people who are talking about how ugly the camera bulge is, which is kind of weird because, you know, all, you know, most of the, certainly all the premium Android phones have camera bulges. And the reason they do is because having a, having some lens makes a dramatically better camera. So, I mean, the goal of having a flat back is one thing, but, you know, everything is a trade-off. If you look at any engineering trade-off, you have to be reasonable about what the cost-benefit ratio is. And if you say, oh, it should be flat, well, yeah, ideally it would be not having anything sticking out, so at least flat on the on its case. But when it comes down to whether or not you're going to have good pictures or not, I think the design choice of having uh, a bulge coming out the back that probably is not even evident if you have a case on it mm-hmm. is a much better design decision than than saying oh we made back flack but your pictures are going to be terrible absolutely now they they also improved the flash and it's so that it's got uh, four leds instead of the former two leds 
And uh, there was a cool feature they talked about there with indoor lighting. Do you remember that feature? Yeah, it relates to the flicker. If you take a picture in a place where there's LED lighting particularly, because LEDs, it's kind of like a movie. It's when to your eye an LED looks like it's solid, but it's actually light. It's actually flashing. And it's flashing because the power going through it is going two directions. And an LED, the D and LED is a diode. It can only go through one direction. So it's actually turning on and off every time the, the electrons change direction. So it's actually flashing, what, 60 times a second in the United States? Uh, U.S. is 60 hertz power, yeah. Yeah, so if you take a photograph of something that's illuminated with LEDs, you usually have this kind of weird waviness because as the camera is taking the picture, it kind of takes it like a, you know, slides from across the screen. As it's collecting the data, it's dealing with the light turning on and off, basically. And so it... Um, you end up with a ripple effect. So they're accounting for that and, and helping get rid of it uh, by taking a picture differently. And um, that applies to LED lighting. And also I would imagine it applies if, you look, if you're taking a picture of a, a CRT or something like that. Because that, that also, if, you, if you've ever taken a picture of an old television, um, the thing repaints the screen. Yeah, you see the interlacing. Yeah. So that that was kind of an interesting thing. Well, and LED lighting is becoming more and more popular. It's, so it's, it's definitely becoming more prevalent as a part of of Apple's HomeKit installations as people start buying in HomeKit lighting. Yeah. And and the other thing is is that the so both cameras got, I think, similar sensors. Right? They both are twelve megapixel. They both have the deep troughs between the pixels to. To help eliminate some of the crosstalk, they they both have uh, image stabilization, which formerly was a, a 6s plus feature and a six plus feature. And yeah, that's the physical right. The actual lens can bounce around to counteract the fact that your arm is jerking, yeah, or that you're shaking, micro shaking. But the seven plus has a dual lens system, which is new. There's a there's a wide angle and a telephoto both. Is that right? Yeah. So there's. The two sensors, I believe, are identical, and one has a lens that's identical to the 7, which is called a wide angle, and the other has a 2x telephoto lens on it. And it's has high enough quality to where I always avoid doing digital zoom, which in digital zoom, you're basically just cropping the picture. Yeah. So you're, you're taking the picture that it's going to give you, and you're just automatically throwing away part of it to look at the a blow-up of the inside of that picture. So when you do a digital zoom, you might as well take the picture and just crop it later because mm-hmm. it's the same number of pixels. It's not any better. Right. But when you do an optical zoom, you're actually using a lens to focus the light on the same, focus different light on the same sensor. So you're actually, it's like putting a, a pair of binoculars in front of your sensor so that it's actually seeing further. Right. And, and, and so you get a sharp picture that's twice as twice as far away but then they they demonstrated this you know tremendous digital zoom that i haven't actually played with it so i don't i can't verify that it's as good as they're portraying it but it looks like because the image sensor is increased so much that you're actually able to zoom in quite dramatically based on what they've shown so i'm really curious to see how well how well that actually works right they showed up to 10x for the digital zoom 
And and in the past, I've used products like the uh, the Exo lens or the Olo Clip, which are, are accessory lenses that snap on over the existing iPhone lens in order to do telephoto or macro or things like that. Having it built in means having a higher quality lens and not having the the different vagaries of light and and size and magnification and uh, and, and sort of fisheyeing that you can get with accessory lenses. Yeah, I mean a two X lens is not tremendous for optical lens. And these lens packs, you can get them on Amazon for now like 10 bucks or something. Well, they're the good ones free. cost more. Yeah, but even like the basic ones are quite good, and they're tremendously better. I mean, you know, the lens built onto a mobile device is plastic. It's like plastic lenses. These are, even the cheapest, cheapest ones are pretty decent quality glass element lenses. So you can get uh, fisheye lens. Usually a, there's a package of like a fisheye lens, and then you unscrew an element, it turns into a you know, a broad wide angle lens. Yeah. And then sometimes they have a telephoto. And those lenses are fun, but they're kind of a hassle to carry around because, you know, when you want a lens, it's it's like carrying around a DLSR or a, even a point and shoot. It's like when you want to take a picture, you probably don't have your camera with you. So it, it's, you know, it's good to have a camera, uh, you know, another lens built in. And they all, they're also doing another interesting thing with the two lenses that they call a portrait. So it's going to be like a new type of photo that you can take between, you know, standard and square and pano and now portrait. So it takes the two lenses and does a 3D model to kind of knock out the foreground. So if you're taking a picture of a person, you use the telephoto lens to uh, focus on a person instead of a scene with a wide angle. And then it uses the two lenses to calculate where the person ends and the area around the background it does a blur on so it creates a, a nice portrait uh, where you kind of pop out from your background so that was really interesting that's going to be delivered shortly after the phone ships right and, and what they're doing is basically the equivalent of shallow depth of field yeah. um, you know like you'd see with a 50 millimeter lens which is like what I think the the telephoto is meant to be is a, is a 50 millimeter I was kind of hoping, I mean, I was, I was kind of expecting that they would do more in, in terms of being able to use the two lenses for more kind of 3D sort of imaging and things. So, But that may actually be in the pipeline. I mean, there's a lot of times that Apple has shipped hardware and the software to really exploit it has taken longer to finish. And, you know, we're seeing that with the watch. Um, yeah. I bought a watch a year ago and WatchOS 3 is making it dramatically better. No, nothing so says they're done yet, right? Interesting things beyond portrait in terms of what they can do with those two lenses together. Definitely. Because remember, Apple bought PrimeSense and mm-hmm. a, a number of other companies that is kind of related to using two lenses to to do interesting things. So it, it'll be cool to see what else they release for that. So let me ask, just um, opinion, the best news out of the event for you. What do you think it was? Uh, I think the most ground-changing is the iPhone 7, obviously, because that's, that's the device you use all the time. You always carry it. Um, I'm a little bit torn about whether I need a new watch. Um, I, don't, I don't do GPS tracking when I do runs. I mean, I don't really do runs because I have bad knees. <laughs> yeah. But if I wanted to do runs, you know, I could do it on my phone. So I, I, I'm not quite desperately interested i'm not i'm not a huge swimmer so i'm not blown away by the series two it's it's definitely a um 
incremental incremental advance in in the watch, and I think a lot of people are gonna it's gonna appeal to more people even. Watch OS three is to me is more interesting than the, the new hardware. Um, the the phone is dramatically faster, dramatically better camera, like all the things that matter. And the other thing that we haven't touched on yet is the article that I wrote about um, wide color, which it was kind of obvious. I mean, I can't really take much credit for having like pointed this out in advance, but when we saw the iPhone, uh, the iPad Pro come out this summer, the the standard 9.7 inch version, it had a dramatically better screen, and if you look at it by itself, there's something about it that's nice, but you don't you don't really get how much better it is until you compare it to another good quality screen, like the old iPad Pro, or another iPad, or an iPhone. It's able to reproduce colors that other screens cannot do yet, or haven't been able to do yet. And they call it wide color, it's a wider color gamut. And it's actually quite strikingly dramatic when you look at pictures that are captured with wide color, and the new the new cameras on both the front facing and the rear camera on the iPhone 7 capture full wide color photos. And Instagram, we did an article on this. Instagram is supporting that in um, reproducing photos that you share. They make the p- photos are much more vibrant. And I think that's going to be a. It, it's the kind of thing that you don't particularly notice. It's almost kind of like the Retina display. Where when you look at it, you're just like, wow, this is really good. Right. But the, until you really investigate, you don't understand why it's good. It's good because the resolution is so much higher. Right. And it's one of those things where you, you once you experience it, going back is where you notice it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, when you go back. Like if I'm working on an iPad Pro and then you go back to your phone, you it feels like flatter. It feels like something's missing. Yeah, if you're working so on really a Retina MacBook and you go back to a MacBook Air and you notice the difference. Oh, oh totally. God. Yeah. So it's that kind of big change. Cool. Well, let me ask personally, which one are you going to get? I, I'm going to get a Pro because I wanted that, that camera. Uh, plus. The, yeah, the Plus. The 7. What color? 7 Plus. In, I, I'm pretty sure i got to get the Jet Black if I can get a hold of one. <laughs> because um, not only is it like the new thing and the shiny, but also... It's actually so shiny that the back is a mirror. So unless you put a case on it, like a big heavy case, um, you can use it to take selfies with right. the, your camera. So you get like a much better quality picture. They, they, they advise you in the small type on Apple's site that it may scratch and so that you, you may want to use a case on it to protect it. But uh, Yeah, definitely it's going to scratch. I mean, you know, it's, a, it's a, a world of... Real devices that we live in, yeah. <laughs> physics apply. <laughs> so I always think it's interesting when people talk about Apple, like, like it's because it's Apple. The world of physics does not apply, and there's there's no abrasion, and you know things can't wear. Well, had they made it out of ceramic? <laughs> yeah, right? I mean, perhaps the, the you know the rumors are the next phone is going to be glass, and actually jet black looks like glass. I keep saying that it oh it looks like it's glass, and it feel and it kind of feels like glass, and I think it. I think in my brain I'm saying that it feels like glass because it's shiny, but in reality it looks like polished. It looks like painted metal, yeah, like really high quality painted metal, like chromed metal, where it's painted with a almost anodized plated, finish. Right? Because of course yeah. that's what it is. It's it's anodized. Yeah. 
but it has that kind of slipperiness to it that isn't slippery in terms of like you can't hold it. No, it's grippy because it's so polished. Yeah, it, it has this kind of slick feel. You know, it feels like a piece of chrome, but in my brain, because it's so shiny, it feels like glass. So it'll be interesting to see in the future if they actually find a way to to develop something that works like glass that's um you know i mean that's they've been working with sapphire the back of the watch is sapphire uh the fancier watches so glass is basically a i did that article on campus too and how the advanced glass that they're doing uh they're working with this company in germany that just huge sheets of of optically pure glass, right? And they're and using it. They had to work to how to do it uh, in curves, in compound curves like that. Something yeah. they hadn't done before. And they're super thick. And um, you know, it's obviously a different set of engineering expertise to do that as opposed to a device. But uh, they're related in in the sense of glass is becoming a. We think of glass as being sort of like this fragile window thing, but glass is silicon. So in a lot of ways, it's it's similar to ceramic. I mean, it's it's this sounds really, really dumb when it's coming out of my mouth, but building things out of ceramic or you know we can make them translucent now. So a case out of glass isn't when you when when you first hear a case out of glass, you think, oh yeah, I'm going to drop it, it's going to shatter. But there's a lot of things that we build that are. There's you know there's a lot of tum- cheap drinking tumblers that you can drop on the ground and they don't shatter. Yeah. Well, I think it'd be kind of cool to have a case if you could make it thin enough that's out of some translucent material that's super hard and super strong that you could have the insides visible. You know, like a Bondi, like iMac. the old iMac. Yeah. Not not the Bondi iMac. Go for the 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 second gen iMacs, like the like the smoky clear one. The smoky clear one or the the iMac DV, that generation. They could go back to candy colors. <sighs> you get flower power. I'll get blue Dalmatian. <laughs> I don't know about the the printed ones. They were kind of stupid, but <laughs> they'd run out of ideas at that point. They were just holding, and they wouldn't be able to sell cases because you wouldn't. You know, if they make them good enough, you won't have to buy a case. Yeah. It'd be like a watch that just like sticks on you without needing a band. It would like lose all that business right there. Mm. And all their partnerships. It is kind of interesting with the watch. I mean, going back to the watch, that they're forming these partnerships with Nike and Hermes and uh, whoever's next uh, to I get do other like, people selling like their the watch. Hermes. Yeah. Hermes Double Tour would be very nice. I'd go for that. So. The the last thing that we haven't talked about is related to the iPhone, and it is where Apple's taken something away. They they took away the headphone jack and they took away the cords. Well, there's still a cord, and now there's an extra cord <laughs> because there's an extra dongle in there. If you want to plug in your old headphones, you can plug it in via a dongle. Okay, so so there is a an adapter that allows you to connect traditional headphones to the lightning jack. There are headphones with a cord that have a lightning connector on them. Am I right so far? Yes. Keep me straight. But also, there are wireless headphones that have no cord at all and instead go in a little tic-tac-shaped box that uh, that charges via lightning. Yes. 
And the, the actual case contains a battery as well. Right. So the case contains a battery and charges the headphones. And these are called AirPods, is that right? Yes. Okay. And basically, the the way they work is they've got a battery inside them, they've got microphones inside them, and they've got, of course, speakers inside them, and a new wireless chip called W1. And and what is what is W1 doing that's different from Bluetooth? So it's doing Bluetooth, and it's doing standard Bluetooth. It works with other devices. It can work with um, you know a PC or an Android phone or whatever, but it. Um, if you use it with a, a non-Apple device, it's a regular Bluetooth thing. And the problem with, you know, a couple of the problems with Bluetooth is that to set it up, there's this kind of back and forth the, the pairing process. Model. And then to go from one device to another, you have to set it up and then you have to disconnect it and then you have to reconnect it to another device. So it's kind of, there's kind of a clunkiness when dealing with Bluetooth, especially moving between devices. I have a Bluetooth speaker that you know if i'm playing my music through my phone and somebody else wants to use it then i have to think oh now how much how much unplugging and replugging do i have to do i have to disconnect mine and they have to reconnect theirs i have to show them how to connect to it so what apple's done with with the the airpods is on the devices they can control they've super simplified it to where it automatically logs in and um you push a button and it's connected to your phone and then if you have want to use them on your iPod, your iPods, or your I'm I'm sorry, your iPads or your yeah. Mac, or whatever. Anything that you have your iCloud account signed into, right? So it uses iCloud to basically um, share the authentication, so you can just move it around really simple and easy, and you can even plug it into your watch. So that that's a real kind of layer of user improvement on top of Bluetooth, but it is basic Bluetooth. So what W1 is? I mean, W is for wireless, obviously. It's a uh, custom chip for uh, doing wireless. Typically, Apple has used off-the-shelf components from other companies, whether it's Broadcom or whoever else. CSR or, yeah. Yeah, so they do Wi-Fi and Bluetooth and whatever. And they haven't detailed everything that's on this Bluetooth chip, but I would, I would assume that it does Bluetooth and Wi-Fi both because Bluetooth 4 has two things on it. One is Bluetooth LE which is the low-power uh, version of Bluetooth. It actually comes from Wybri or whatever. It, it's, it's not... There's, like, classic Bluetooth that was on the Nokia phones that um, had a lot of shortcomings. And Bluetooth LE is actually a different standard, but they call it Bluetooth just cause for branding purposes. Well, the, the low-energy standard came a part of the, uh, the Bluetooth 4 spec. Yeah, so that, it was actually... It's, it's still totally the same special interest group. It's just that, that BLE is a different spec... But it was technology developed by another firm, yeah. by another group. I think it was Wybri is what they were branding it. And then that fell apart. And that became part of the Bluetooth 4 spec. So it's actually not Bluetooth, but it's now Bluetooth. By any other name, I mean. <laughs> I mean, it's like if you replaced Flash with HTML5 and then you called it Flash. Well, it's not Flash. It's HTML5. But if you rebranded it, Flash 2, then, you know, it's Flash, I guess. Um, so it's actually a different standard than the classic Bluetooth. So they distinguish between classic Bluetooth and Bluetooth 4 LE, which is low energy. And then there's another uh, standard that's kind of similarly folded into Bluetooth called, um, uh, what is it called? You don't, you don't hear about it as much, but it was part of, 
I think it was Bluetooth 3. But it was developed as part of a standard called universal wireless right. it was kind of like us it was kind of like the version of usb for wireless well well so the point of three was that you had bluetooth and it also had wi-fi rolled in and so yeah, you so could that's, uh that's what I'm you could get about. high data over it because it would start the bluetooth yeah, hs that's what it's called yeah so hs is a, a feature that kind of got folded in which is also not bluetooth at all but it's basically using bluetooth to set up a connection and then it jumps over to wi-fi hardware so that you actually have a lot of throughput because bluetooth in any specification is not very fast well it was meant as a personal area network it was never supposed to carry a whole lot of data yeah so bluetooth was intended to be sort of a replacement for serial serial ports rs232 serial um so it wasn't designed for massive throughput but for things like continuity and anything that you use modern Bluetooth for, you actually want it to be pretty fast. And so to achieve that, you jump to Wi-Fi hardware. So it's kind of like this hybrid. It's kind of like Fusion Wireless. But um, <laughs> whatever, it's all these different technologies are now part of Bluetooth 4, even though they're somewhat unrelated. So I would imagine that the W1 chip does Bluetooth and also does Wi-Fi, um, because that's kind of part of the standard is having that hardware. But it's a custom VLSI chip that Apple has developed on its own, very similar to, you know, the S series or the A series. They've actually done a lot of their own optimizations on it, and so it's specific to what they want to do. And that's interesting for a couple of things. Is one is they can use it for other things now. So the first thing that they've used it in is their own AirPods, and they've announced that that beats which is their subsidiary it's part of apple but they're using it in all their new wireless products ranging from the low end to the high end to the middle beats power three beats solo wireless three whatever yes and probably in the future they're going to be using it in other products as well i mean obviously they're going to be using it in other products but um it shows a lot of the increasing vertical uh do, do you What's, think it's do you think it's something that they'll license out to third party headphone manufacturers? Probably not. I mean, they've never shared the A4 with anybody. I mean, the A series devices and the A series chips. Mm-hmm. There would be a market for that. I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of companies that would like to have a high efficiency ARM chip. Right. Well, um, I was thinking in, in terms of uh, them allowing Lightning accessories, they've they've done that through the MFI program. And and certainly they have MFI um, headphones via the Lightning connector, so why not license the W1 out as well? Um, I, you know, it's possible. I think it's probably less likely now that Apple owns Beats. I mean, they, th- they paid three billion dollars for a headphones company. They're probably not going to share their crown jewels with other companies, but they'd want connectivity with other companies' products. So if you're building competitive pair of headphones. They may even be better than Apple's. They may have like high response. They may have uh, fancier digital audio converters or whatever. Um, Apple wants those kind of devices in its ecosystem, so they're going to license the ability to use Lightning ports. You can plug it into an iPhone, but I think they have much less reason to license their own custom chips. Okay, there's, there's probably all kinds of trade secrets in that. But let me ask another question. Uh, since they make Beats, and we know that Beats is sort of a, a mid-range level headphone, are they going to make a high-end headphone? I mean, I'm probably they'll probably see where the uh, demand goes. I mean, also that's very relative. I mean, what what is high-end? 
if you look at phones, what's a high-end phone? There are Android phones that sell for tens of thousands of dollars because they're encrusted with diamonds or whatever. Apple has no interest in making anything like that because about the, in terms of sound the demand for that is so small that it doesn't make any sense. But um, if you look at the iPhone, like we were talking about earlier, ASPs of iPhones are $650. The ASP of the phones that people are, the Android phones people are actually buying are, I think Samsung's are around 250 and you know, they talk about all these phones in China that are being built, but they're they're like a hundred dollar ASPs. Like on average, they're selling for a hundred dollars. So, you know, if you talk about where the premium market is, Apple is really good at knowing how to target the the premium market that matters. And that'll probably also show up in other things. So you're talking about headphones. You know, there are auto files that will pay insane amounts of money for really fancy headphones, but there's not that many of them. Whereas you know, if you look at Beats, you can call it sort of moderate level stuff, but that's where the sweet spot of the um, higher end market is, is headphones that cost, you know, headphones that cost around $300. That's, that's kind of fancy. I mean, it's not, it's not the, it's not expensive compared to a lot of things, but there's not, uh, there's a, there's a difference. Diminishing return on how fancy you can get before you don't have anybody that's going to pay that much money for well, it. You, you, you can get so, a much better headphone for the same amount of money as you can buy a Beats headphone. You know, you can get a Bang & Olufsen. You can get a Bang & Olufsen H6 within the same kind of price range that you can get the Beats headphones. You can get, um, you know, I, they're, they're, well, if you're talking about whether number, Apple will get better, whether Apple and whether Apple's Beats subsidiary will continue to make products that are better and better. Mm. I think that's probably likely. I think they're going to continue to make better products because there is, obviously, if there's competitors that are making um, better sounding headphones at a similar price target, Apple wants to be competitive. Um, But if you're talking about premium in in terms of just straight up expensive, I think there's the, the, the market, you know, if you look at the bell curve of the market, it goes down pretty quickly after you start getting past where Beats is selling. Sure, I'm, I'm talking totally about quality, and, okay. and not not price point. I'm I'm talking about within the same price range, anywhere from two fifty to four hundred kind of thing, two two hundred fifty to four fifty, basically. Yeah, definitely. I think Apple's going to work harder at making um, increasingly advanced headphones that are not only sound better, but also you know lighter and more comfortable and better materials and things because you know the beats was kind of considered sort of lower end materials definitely well let's let's wrap this up i've been talking to you for an hour and so uh what, what are your parting thoughts when you think about summarizing this event for for our listeners i think it really shows how little you can, how little um value there is in people who talk about what apple's going to be doing before they do it there's this huge uh, desperate rush to, you know, try to say everything that Apple's going to come out with. Careful, because that's what we do here on the Apple Insider podcast. Um. Yeah, I mean, we, we talk about things that are happening and because there's an awful lot of our readers that are, care about whether or not they should buy things. Should they buy things now or should, should they wait? But there's a difference between trying to have a sense of, like, what's happening, what's in the pipeline, and just trying to say, you know, here's everything Apple's going to announce, like, the day before, it's kind of like a spoiler ruiner, which I don't. I don't think there's that much value in it. But also, there's there was such an effort to. It almost seems kind of malicious. I mean, part of it is just trying to have recognition for things. But 
there were a lot of key things that Apple introduced, and we didn't even talk about the whole Nintendo thing. That's kind of a big deal that Nintendo's making devices for iOS or making apps for iOS now. Um, but that was not anything that anybody guessed about. And you know, if you if you talk about the material value of news, it would have been nice to know that in advance if you're going to print rumors that. Nintendo's going to do because I could have invested in Nintendo and made a bunch of money, <laughs> but nobody. <laughs> that was the secret that Apple got and under the radar. And, you know, and it has made a bunch it. of money from Nintendo. Their price went way up. Yeah, I, I wish I would have thought of that <laughs> <laughs> because you know Nintendo's, Nintendo's stock went up dramatically when Pokemon Go came out. And one of the things I wrote about that was that actually Nintendo is not getting that much money from. Yeah, they have a lot of actually part- Apple's making more more money. Or you know, a comparable amount of money because Apple's making a third from the App Store, and Nintendo is making something less than that from just licensing their stuff. And here, Apple or Nintendo is going to be actually producing the application, so they're going to be making a, the other cut outside of the App Store of sales. And it's not a subscription thing where people are paying for, you know, whatever you pay for in Pokemon Go to keep playing it, the in-app purchases. Um, this is that's going to be a paid app game, so people are going to be paying to play N- Nintendo, the Super Mario, um, not Super Mario Go, is it Super Mario Run? Yeah. So Apple is going to be clearly benefiting from a third of the revenues generated by this th- sales of this app. It's going to be a big deal, I think. I'm, I'm and sure of it. No one's even giving any attention to Apple for for pulling this off. And then Nintendo stock goes up dramatically. And it's like, well, I hope it's successful for Nintendo. I was also kind of starstruck at uh, at the event. I was standing outside, and you know, here comes the guy from Nintendo. And I'm just like, whoa. What, Shigeru Miyamoto? <laughs> yeah. And he's standing there, and you know, they're talking, and I'm just like, whoa. And I'm thinking, this is kind of cool. I've, I've never even thought I would see in person. Here's this guy. I could just reach out and touch him. And he develops these Nintendo games. And then I turned around, and Angela Aaron says behind me... <laughs> So I was like, oh, wow, I'm surrounded by influential very, people. Very cool. That kind of flesh, flesh in the face. Very cool. Well, Dan, thank you so much for going to the event. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. Um, where yeah, can, thanks for putting together the podcast. You do all the work on it. It's great. <laughs> where, where can people find you on the Internet? I'm on Twitter at Daniel Aaron. E-R-A-N. And I'm also uh, lately have been taking over Apple Insider's Instagram. It's Apple Insider underscore official. So you should follow our Instagram. We just started posting things. I'm So if, if you like to watch, if you, if you communicate graphically on a social level, that's one thing to follow. And of course, there's also Instagram. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, Twitter, Apple Insider on Twitter is just Apple Insider. Fantastic. And of course, I write for Apple. Oh, that too. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you very much, Dan, and and we'll be back next week with all the latest news as we find out more about the iPhone Seven as it begins to launch. This has been the Apple Insider Podcast, episode eighty-five. Thanks so much for listening. And if you found it valuable, if you enjoyed listening this week, please make sure it helps us out a whole lot. If you go to iTunes and rate and review us, we, we really do appreciate the good ratings. And I want to thank the people who, uh, who gave us ratings last week. Um, it, it was really, really nice to read those and I appreciate it very much. Uh, I'm going to read them. In fact, we had some nice ones. So I'm going to give some call outs here. Hold on a second. It's always nice when people, uh, 
post nice things on the internet. Yeah, well, it, <laughs> it is. It really stands out because most of the people, most of the people who comment are complaining or you know excessively rude about the, the internet some comments. Small typo or something. The internet comments so everywhere I, I are made of complaints. But but uh, I want to call. I want to say thank you to to uh, a user by the name of Shuping S H U P I N G who wrote this is my fix. Apple Insider is my go to. Uh, Josh Holm wrote on on the iTunes Store. Great for Apple fans. Um, Molly M fifty four said timely topics and and said that we did a terrific job of guiding the conversation. Uh, a user whose name is a long string of numbers that begins one seven two seven four eight five eight nine six nine six nine three. Goodness, I, I don't know how you ever remember that. Said I like this podcast. Uh, a great listen each week by PMZDJ and great show by AKA Tony Starks. So we had a number of people who were very kind and, and thoughtful and gave us great reviews. And I want to thank them and please feel free to give us great reviews and, 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 you know, tell, tell us where we mess up too, but I really do appreciate it. Thank you so much. This has been the Apple Insider podcast episode 85. We'll be back next week. 